Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Provoked to Reason by Pastor Sean Wood. Okay, if you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 this morning, we'll continue working with our reaching out theme, but uh, the speaking of Ravi Zacharias, he, he tells a wonderful joke. It's about uh, two young brothers that grow up to be absolute scallywags. He uses the word scallywag. Isn't that awesome? I haven't heard that word for like 50 years. But anyway, he uses these two guys grow up to be scallywags. They are, they are absolute ratbags. These boys are in all sorts of trouble that they can be in. The older they get, the more trouble they get in. They're in trouble with the law. And finally, one of the brothers dies. And the surviving brother walks into the minister and says, I want you to conduct the funeral for my brother. These guys are known gangsters. They're kind of mixed with some of the heavy people in town and the minister's a little bit taken back and says, you sure there isn't anybody else that you would prefer to do the service? And they said, no. He said, you're going to do the service and you're going to somewhere in your message mention the fact that my brother was a saint. And the the pastor's like, "I I can't do that. Anyway, the pastor thinks about it for a while and he rings the brother and he says, you know what, I've thought about it and I'm going I'm to do it. So he turns up, he does the funeral service, and all the family are there and he says, you know what, he says, this man here that has passed away, he said his entire life he was nothing but a rat bag. He was into every form of mischief, he said, that you could think of, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> Let's pray and then we'll come around the word. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open and our ears attentive, Lord, that we would hear from you this morning in your wonderful name. Okay, Acts chapter 17, we continue our uh, outreach service, our outreach theme. We'll actually do, we'll kill two birds with one stone next week. We'll finish our reaching out series and we will begin to finish off our series in the Gospel of John. We'll do that uh, in John chapter 18. Pilate asked Jesus a fantastic question, but then he turned around and walked away before Jesus could give him the answer. The question is, what is truth? In the world that we live in today, that's a fantastic question to ask. What is truth? And I wish Pilate hadn't walked away because it was standing right before him. But we'll, we'll have a look at truth and how can we know truth. And then we'll have a look at truth as well next week. But today I want to talk to you about uh, Paul where he is at Mars Hill. And uh, it's interesting that uh, what Paul does here. But, you know, when I was thinking and praying about this, uh, how many people here would agree that the church in the book of Acts got it right. How many people would agree that the church that we see here actually got it right? By the time we get to the epistle uh, to the Colossians, Paul will say that the gospel has reached the known world. Not the globe, but the known world. And the known world for Paul was Palestine and Asia Minor. And that is an enormous feat that could only have been accomplished by the power of the Holy Ghost. But he worked through these men. These 12 or 11 men that we are left with, we we find 120 people in the upper room and the gospel takes off like wildfire. They got it right. But when I have a look at the people in the book of Acts, I understand that there's a few things that are a little bit different to perhaps our lives today and perhaps what we find in churches. And we need to shift 
If we want to be like the church in the book of Acts, we need to shift. I was talking to one of the elders about it this morning. One of the shifts we need to make, one thing that is absolutely clearly different, is they had a power shift. Where they shifted all the power from themselves to God. They didn't do anything without praying. They planned, yes. They, they planned missionary trips and all of that, but the power and the reliance was fully upon God. And another one that I want to talk about today is we need to have a priority shift. We need to shift our priority from inreach to outreach because the priority for every single one of the people we read about in here was taking the gospel to people, unsaved people. That was their priority. That was their priority. And they got it right. So we need a priority shift. And let's have a look at one man that had a... Com- he, this guy here, he had a complete priority shift. You ever, you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they go, you know what, I, I, that person, I wish they'd get saved because they'd make a really good Christian. Nobody would have said that about Paul. Nobody would have said, I hope he gets saved because he'll make a really good Christian. All of them were probably calling down fire on Paul. But here's a guy that has a huge priority shift in his life and also the continuation of his life. So let's, let's begin with uh, verse 16 of chapter 17. And we read, uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now who is Paul waiting for? He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. And uh, he has gone on ahead of them to Athens. And Paul, has, at this point in time, has never been to Athens yet. And as he walks the streets, we'll see that he is, he is taken back by what he sees. And he would have preferred to wait for Timothy and Silas before he began any form of ministry. But there's a reason why he can't. It says that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. It says that his spirit was provoked within him. And I, I wrote about this in Rock Reflections this week as well, but there was something different about Paul and there was something different about the apostles and they were driven to do what they did. Nothing could stop Paul from speaking the gospel. Paul was put in jail. He would just preach to the jailers. And he would preach to those in prison. All of the apostles that we see are the same. In fact, Nero gets that frustrated with the apostle John that he puts him in a vat of boiling oil to shut him up. And when that doesn't work, he says, put him on Patmos and get him out of my sight. Nothing would stop these guys from speaking. And and Paul, we see, is driven and he is provoked by what I would like to call a holy indignation. Something is unsettling inside of Paul. Wherever else we read of provoked in the Hebrew, it's where God is roused to anger and provoked due to what he sees within his people. And we see a rousing to anger within Paul. He is is absolutely driven by what he sees. But what is is it that provokes him? Because as he saw that the city was full of idols. We'll unpack this more as we move along, but the actual phrase full of idols could also literally mean that the city was swamped in idols. Very religious people. Every single person, whether they admit it or not, they're religious. Everybody is worshipping. Idolatry is misguided worship. And I know we can sit in here and say, well, we don't see all these little carved images anymore or anything like that. We don't see people building altars, but they do build them in their hearts. 
People are worshipping. And Paul is provoked because their worship is misguided. He's provoked because of the idolatry that he sees. Idolatry, the church is not free from idolatry, unfortunately. You might be sitting here this morning and go, you know, what does constitute an idol? Well, here's how to do a little bit of an exam on your own heart. Imagine everything in your life that you have, whatever it is, and now evaluate everything you have and ask yourself the question, what is the one thing that if you take that from me, I can't go on, I can't live anymore if you take that from me? That is what you are worshipping. And if it's not God, it's an idol. Uh, Mark Pat shared about Bob Buford uh, yesterday. Bob Buford, who began half-time, Mark Patch in his testimony shared about Bob Buford. And Bob Buford was a man that gets to 48 years of age and realises, you know what, I'm extremely successful, but I want to move from there to significance. And he, he divides his billions into living and giving, and he, he invests in the kingdom of God. But it, it comes when he, he, he spends 12 months seeking an answer to what it is to find significance. And he's talking to a non-Christian and he says, mate, he says, that's easy. He says, what's the one thing you can't live without? If you could lose everything, what is it that you can't lose? And he said, oh, I can't lose my faith in Christ. And he says, pour everything that is of yourself into that. That's where you'll find significance. Here's a man with billions of dollars and says, I can't live without faith. Dwight L. Moody says that when a man is filled with the word of God, you cannot keep him still. If a man has got the word, he must speak or die. Jeremiah would phrase it in this way. Your word is like a fire shut up in my bones. He was a man driven by holy indignation, almost cost him his life many times. But Jeremiah had such a reputation that when the Babylonians stormed the city, they paused for a moment and said, where's Jeremiah? Where is he? He's in jail because the king had chucked him in jail. So when the word of God gets into a person like Paul, we see that he, it's like a fire shut up in his bones and he's driven to do something. Let's see what he now does. Verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be there. Paul reasoned with them. You will, you will read in the book of Acts that Paul reasons and he proclaims. And he, reasoning is more than preaching. Reasoning is, is dialogue. Reasoning is conversation. Reasoning is, yes, it is a dispute, but there's a difference between reasoning and an argument because an argument's all about, oh, I want to win, whereas reasoning is, I want you to understand. I want you to understand. So Paul looks for allies and he goes straight into the synagogue. And when he goes into the synagogue, we need to understand that they also would have been uh, non-believers. They would not have been believers necessarily in Christ. And so Paul goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them also. But then he goes into the marketplace And uh, one author will say that from the marketplace, Paul enters the third space evangelism. That's called invitational evangelism. It's where people invite you. That's a a very special platform that people invite you onto. We'll see how Paul gets there. But Paul goes into the marketplace. Paul takes Jesus Christ to the culture. What's the marketplace? 
The marketplace is where you went to buy and to sell and to trade, but they didn't have Google in those days. So if you wanted information, you would go to the marketplace and those kinds of people would hang around and linger there. We will see that. It was, it was a social space. It was a business space. And when we look at all of this, we begin to understand, if we ask ourselves the questions, what is today's marketplace? It looks like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Google. Yes, it's the supermarket. Yes, it's your workplace. But the marketplace is where people spend their lives. Unfortunately, too many people are spending too much of their lives in the digital space. So Paul goes into the marketplace and I love how it says that he went there every day. He didn't just go there once and give it a crack. You know, that didn't really work. I might just get on a boat and go and see if I can find Timothy and Silas and try somewhere else. What I love about Paul is uh, it doesn't matter with Paul. His his whole ministry was not results-driven. Uh, it couldn't have been. I mean, they stoned him, and it means a different thing than it does today, stoned. But they stoned him in some places. They rejected his message. Some received, some rejected. We'll look at that as we move on. But Paul goes into the marketplace, and who did he seek out in the marketplace? Did he, did he seek out the dignitaries? Did he, did he seek out the elect? No, 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 no. What did he do? He goes into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It didn't matter who was there. The gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for anybody and the gospel is for everybody. And he just starts conversations about Christ. He reasons with people. He engages in dialogue with people about Jesus. So in the... In the marketplace, he would have found people that were educated. He would have found people that were cultural. Athens was very cultural. It was, uh, it was full of creatives, heaven forbid, and it was full of uh, wonderful statues and all sorts of things. People that thought too much and acted too little. And uh, two groups of those people were Epicureans and Stoics philosophers. And these guys, we now read that he... He uh, went into the marketplace every day with whoever happened to be there and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And these guys have just got too much time on their hands. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So some just said, this guy is nothing but a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And it was not advisable to preach foreign divinities in the court of the Areopagus. And the reason for that is Socrates found out you can be condemned for introducing new deities. But Paul does something very clever. Very clever. I love what C.H. Spurgeon says, which relates to the marketplace. He says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you've got a problem, complaints at C.H. Spurgeon. I'm not sure whether you'll answer. 
So <clears throat> we see that these Epicureans and Stoics, it's interesting the background these guys come from. Epicureans, uh, they pursued pleasure as the chief purpose in life, and they did not deny the existence of God, but no way did they think that God was in, uh, involved in the affairs of man. This God was distant and far off. They, therefore, they didn't reason within themselves that there was any accountability or any reckoning or any reward from this life. So pleasure was all that we have. Sound a little bit familiar? There's people today that you could put in the Epicurean class. Then we have the Stoics. The easiest way to sum up the Stoics was uh, they were pantheists. And if you could sum them up with one sentence, you would say that God is in everything and everything is God. They can see that there is order in the universe. They can see that there is regularity in the universe. They can see that it is just not reasonable and plausible that all of this just came from nothing. But they just say God is in everything. It doesn't lead them to God. They stop there. And I love what uh, Paul does in front of all of this audience. He preaches Jesus Christ and the resurrection. I love the fact that, you know, as we go through the book of Acts, it doesn't matter where Paul is. He's in different places. He's talking to different audiences. It never matters. It's always the same message. And we're even going to have a look today as he, as he speaks to this court of thinkers, as he speaks to this assembly of thinkers, we're going to see that he doesn't introduce all the Christianese, as Chuck Swindoll would say. He drops the Christianese, but every word he says is absolutely saturated in gospel. And he never finishes a message without the climax, which is Jesus Christ. He always comes to Jesus. The whole Bible's about Jesus. You have to get to Jesus at some point in time. This was a strange thing to their ears. As we read it down to verse 20, it says, for you bring some strange things to our ears. And this is actually, I just paused there for a moment to say that if you speak to people in the street today of Jesus, he is a strange thing to their ears, and that is a detriment to us. Do you know in the first century, by the time, I think it's Acts Acts 20, by the time they dragged them before the Jewish council, These guys are like, your teaching has filled the whole of Jerusalem. What are we going to do with you guys? We can't stop you. Your message has filled the whole of Jerusalem. Praise God. May his message fill the whole of Brisbane and Queensland. Come with me now to verse 22. We'll start there and we now move into what I actually think is one of the saddest verses In the Bible, as we start at verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And Paul's very clever here. He he takes, he observes where they're at, and he starts there, and he's going to introduce Jesus. So he says, "I, I, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I'm not going to introduce a new deity here. I'm going to I'm going to address one that you've got. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God to the unknown God that's that's a historical fact there was an altar to the unknown God and Paul goes on to say what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you and there are people today that on their hearts they have to an unknown God Blaise Pascal says that we're all born with a God-shaped hole in our hearts And until we find him, that hole is empty. We try to cram it full of everything else. There's only one that fits, and that is God. But everybody's worshipping. 
And everybody's got written on their hearts to an unknown God. And these guys here are devoting their lives to to worshipping lifeless statues. And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. You know, God sees that person that gets up at 4 o'clock every morning and runs out the door and spends all day and clambers back in the door at 7 o'clock at night because his, his career or his money or whatever it is drives him so relentlessly to work endless hours. God sees that person sitting at the bar every single night because that is a place where they think they find some kind of importance. God sees that, and I've worked in a casino, God sees those old ladies lined up too deep for a long way back and this is in Launceston, so I'm assuming it's worse here, at nine o'clock in the morning waiting for the ribbon to be taken down so they can spend their entire day behind bells and whistles on a machine. People, people are worshipping because they are empty. People have written on their hearts to an unknown God and the whole time God is saying, I am waiting to be wanted. I want you to get up at four o'clock in the morning for me. I, I, I want you to be waiting to come and see me. I want me to be what it is that fills and drives your life. So many people are full of so much else. People say, I've heard people say, you know, I want to desire God more. How can I desire God more? Empty your life. The reason is we are full of desire for so much other stuff in our lives that God's trying to cram into the corner and find some room. So Paul says, he now addresses to the unknown God and and our, our slogan or our motto here is to know Christ and to make him known. And that is what people are waiting for. People are actually waiting for us to make Jesus known. They're not waiting for perfect saints. They're not waiting for people who are completely and utterly sinless. Won't happen, by the way, until you get into the presence of Jesus. But people aren't waiting for that. They're waiting for people to show them Jesus. To the unknown God. Now Paul begins his address. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, and by proclaim it means to announce publicly, I proclaim to you not a God, the God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples but made by man. And, and the, the, the flavour of what Paul has to say is very apologetic. The flavour that Paul says is giving a reason for the faith, but he begins at the right place. Let's establish the fact that there is a God. That's where he starts. There is a God. There is clear evidence that there is a God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. That's a fantastic statement. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Dr. Hugh Ross is an amazing man. He writes uh, a series of books explaining how everything we observe in the universe, and you should know, he's an astrophysicist, everything we observe in the universe lines up to the Bible. And I can remember, I've, I've, he came to Lugano one time and spoke uh, at an Easter time one time, and he said, you know, God has actually written two books, and this is not heresy or anything yet, but he said, God has written two books by which we are able to know him and to understand him. And the first one is the Bible, and the second one is the universe and nature and everything like that. It displays his glory. It points to the wonderment of who he is. 
and we're able to understand this God. He gives us everything. He is the regularity that we see in the universe. He's made the world and everything in it. Paul goes on and he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. But I love how he finishes that sentence. Yet he's actually not very far from any of us. And what Paul is saying is seeking God is not a matter of distance travelled. It's not about getting on a plane and going to Israel. As Stu found out, there is just as much Jesus in Israel as there is right here in Brisbane. There is just as much gospel. God is just as much here as he is anywhere. And as I've said before, uh, you now have all the presence of God you're ever going to get. People say, hang on a second. You don't need to pray for God to show up. He's already here. You don't need to wonder in your minds, how am I ever going to get back to God? It's simple. Just turn around. He's already there. He's not very far from either of us. And that's a beautiful statement to make to these guys who think God perhaps sprinkled the earth and then took off to a distant place. Paul says, no, he's close to all of us. He's not very far from any of us. So what is the problem then? What is the difference? And if God's presence is here... Shouldn't we be wiped out on the floor? Yeah, to some degree. The difference is awareness. It's a, it's a knowledge and it's an awareness and a perception of his presence. And we have been called to increase the awareness of God, yes, in this place, but also in the marketplace. And we raise the awareness of God in three ways, by our witness, by our personal testimony, and by our message. Yes, it's about the life we live. Yes, it's about our personal testimony. My first pastor said to me, uh, if, if you're ever wondering what to say, just tell somebody your testimony because nobody can refute your personal testimony. Nobody, nobody can take that away from you, what God has done personally for you. And we have a message which is the same as Paul's message. And let's go on and find out more about what this message looks like. It says that in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. Now he's going to quote some of their poets. Well done, Paul. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. And how we get this the wrong way around. What Paul is saying is man has been created in the image of God. God has never been and never will be created in the image of man. Man is still trying to fashion and form what they think God looks like. So being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. God <coughs> has formed us in his image. Paul goes on to say that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Now he brings his message to a climax. That the, the times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, when you were unaware of what you were doing, God has overlooked your ignorance. And there is an implication that comes with the message of the gospel. Once you have heard the gospel, once you, once you have been shown Jesus, there is an implication. Ignorance has been removed. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Not some people somewhere, 
not just a couple of really elite elect people over there. No, all people everywhere is who the gospel is for. And he commands all of them to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us an assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day when we will all stand before him. Now, for those who stand before God, the day will come when you will stand before God and we will be judged according to Christ, whether we have accepted or, re- or, or rejected Christ. There is an accountability for the people of God. We will give an account of this wonderful deposit that he has placed in every one of us. But God has fixed a day, and the resurrection is the assurance, not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but that we have a hope that is beyond this world. We have a hope that transcends the storms of our life. God has fixed a day. And as we bring this to a close this morning, let's have a look at the results here. Paul's preached a a standout message. He's he's finished his message in the person of Jesus Christ. He's, He's... He's exposed the truth that there absolutely is a God and this God will demand a reckoning when we all stand before him. But what are the results? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. And I wish also that their names were Bill, Ben and Jennifer, but they weren't. So, but what we see here is the results that Paul has is, you know what, some mocked him and rejected everything that he said. Paul's not in control of that. Some mocked him. Some said, you know what, I want to hear more of what you've got to say. We'll hear you more on this matter. And others believe. But what would have happened had Paul kept silent? As I bring this to a close this morning, I want to ask what provokes you or what is it that drives you? We need a a priority shift from inreach to outreach where we're thinking and praying and we are reaching out to people who need Christ. But what provokes you? And I want you to think this morning perhaps of who it is that is in your marketplace. If ever there was a time that we need positivity, and as a church we're going to move towards this as the months come, but we want to put a positive influence on Facebook. We want to put a positive influence into Instagram. We want to put a positive influence on Google and on websites and all that sort of stuff. We want to put positive messages on there. That's part of our marketplace. But your marketplace is the person that you work with as well. Your marketplace includes the people that you see every day where you buy your paper. These are people that are in your life and they are your marketplace. We have been called to confront our city full of ignorance and idols. You've been called to confront and to reason with the people in your marketplace. Let us pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au.
You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.